so yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm going to talk about social physics in the big city, uh, what that means to me and what that means to the world. Uh, i start off by introducing myself. Jason's done a wonderful introduction, but um, just as sort of a general backup, this is me with slightly less of a beard. Uh, um, my name's Martin Zotz-Orstwick, and uh, I did a physics undergradu undergraduate degree. And I took that and did a, a specialising in antisocial physics, because by default, physics is fairly antisocial, at least for the purposes of this, this slide. I know there's some physicists in the audience, so I apologise. Um, uh, my PhD was in solid-state physics uh, in the materials department. I still call myself a physicist, though. At that point, I did. Uh, and worked on quantum computing and nanotechnology. And, and after that, I decided that wasn't really sociable enough, so I, I wanted to move into something a bit more involving human beings. And I uh, worked in medical laser physics for a while, still calling myself a physicist, just about. Uh, and then I joined CASA, Center for Advanced Spatial Analysis, in the Bartlett two years ago, um, uh, and became a lecturer uh, last year. And occasionally, if people ask me, I say that I'm a social physicist, apart from the sort of friendly aspect to it. This describes the discipline that I work in to some degree. Uh, so what is social physics? Well, <clears throat> um, the term was coined by uh, this man, uh, August Comte, and this man, Adolf Quetelet. And they were working in the early 1800s. August Comte um, was doing work uh, applying um, mathematical methods from, uh, from uh, physics uh, to, to new social data sets, new information that the state was releasing. And in fact, uh, later, he stopped using the phrase social physics because this other chap started using it, and the field that he founded became known as sociology. So he's one of the founding fathers of sociology. Uh, this other chap, Quetelet, uh, um, was doing some very much similar work. And the work that he now does, he, the work that he does would now be called statistics. So he's one of the first statisticians. A lot of the original statistical techniques came over from astronomy and physics in trying to understand data sets about human beings. In fact, the name statistics comes from state, as in the, the, the country, the nation state. So it um, doesn't exactly answer the question. Um, <clears throat> this is all in the 1830s, by the way. So this, this isn't anything terribly new. This, this is from um, uh, almost 200 years ago now. Um, he was told the people I considered to be social physicists because they thought about using maths to predict the future of society and the course of society. Uh, the man on uh, the left, as you look at it, there is Karl Marx. He thought by, that by understanding uh, capitalism mathematically, he could predict its downfall. He could understand the seeds that would, uh, would sow its own destruction. Um, the, the chap on the, on the right is Isaac Asimov, a science fiction writer who came up with this, this idea of psychohistory. And he said that while you can't predict the behavior of individuals, maybe you can statistically aggregate the whole society and see the way the society is going. These are rather grandiose plans. Marx wasn't terribly successful at causing the downfall of capitalism, at least not yet. Um, and Isaac Asimov is a science fiction writer and not uh, generally regarded as a serious academic. So what is social physics? So much for the dead white guy theory of social physics. None of them are terribly successful. Those who were successful changed their name from physics to uh, avoid the, the essential recriminations. So, I call social physics applying mathematical techniques to social systems. And actually, lots of people are doing this already. This isn't that, that new, again. It's statistics. Uh, it's using mathematical techniques. Um, it's using computer simulations. Uh, it's not generally using that much physics. And there are little bits of physics that have come over, normally through statistics, that have come over to uh, these sorts of uh, studies, which have been useful. But generally, there's not that much physics going on. It's just a sort of a, a, a name, really. 
So you could just say this is quantitative social science, and by which I mean things which deal with numbers and not feelings. But that's a sort of, that's a, that's a side swipe at qualitative social science, and actually it is kind of important what those numbers mean. It's not enough to, just, just to say that I'm a, I'm a quantitative person and I, and I can do all this analysis. What do those things mean? How do I put them in the context? Okay, so if we fast forward to the present day uh, and we start to talk about the, the, the uh, title uh, of, of this lecture, which is Social Physics and the Science of Cities. So rather than looking at the whole of society, I'm going to talk a bit more about what my department does and what people in, the, in my field do, which is more generally more cities-focused. There, there are people in my department who don't exclusively focus on cities, but um, it, that sort of narrows the topic a bit more than talking about the whole of the world and every, every human being in it. So <clears throat> what kind of, how do you form a social physics? How do you think about science of cities? What kind of questions do you need to ask yourself? How do the physicists make themselves useful in this, in this context in social science? What, is a, what would a science of cities look like? Or is there just one? Do you need to have more than one science of cities? The answer is probably yes at the moment, certainly. What sort of theories do we need to develop? What sort of data do we need? What sort of people do we need? <coughs> well, I can, say, I can tell you what sort of people are in CASA. Um, it's a massively interdisciplinary effort. And what we have is planners, computer scientists as a physicist, another as a geographer, another computer scientist, geographers, network theorists, a psychologist, uh, transport economics, another physicist, mathematicians, um, another planner, more mathematicians. So a massive range of different, this isn't all the people in my department, by the way, this is just, all the, um, just, just a few people to give you a flavor of the kind of interdisciplinary, inter interdisciplinary research, research that we do. You can't just come in with one discipline for this new uh, sort of the, for these new techniques, you need to have people who, who know maths, you need to have people who know how to build databases, you need to have people who actually understand, who've worked with cities, who, who are planners, who are architects, who are geographers. So the, the answer is it, the, the kind of people that you need are from a broad range of different, different disciplines, you need them all to come together and to work together to, to understand cities. Now, <clears throat> one of the first things that I think you need to do is when you're looking at um, when you're looking at a data source around a city. We don't always start from this perspective, but if you've got data about a city, one of the first things you have to do to try and understand it is to visualize it. Even before you get into mathematical analysis, statistics, and graphing, all that sort of stuff, is just to start to visualize the data, to get a sense of what is this data that we're looking at, what does it mean, can we spot any patterns in it that will inform how we do the analysis and, and develop models around it. And so this is an example of a visualization. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a map which um, visualization guru Edward Tufte called, I think he said it was the greatest visualization ever produced or something like that. And it shows the, the path of Napoleon's army um, to and from Moscow. And the width of that line tells you how big his army is. So it starts off pretty large. By the time it gets to Moscow, it's not doing so well. By the time it gets all the way back, uh, it's, it's really dwindled to a tiny fraction of its size. And there's some other information here as well which tells you uh, things like the temperature, uh, which is obviously a fairly decisive factor in, this, in this, the, the forced march of this army. But with a very simple visualization, there's an enormous amount of information communicated there. You've got dates, you've got geography, you've got, uh, you've got a route, and you've got numbers of, of troops. 
So just by looking at that, I mean, we could talk, we could, I could talk around this, or I could produce graphs to show what was happening with his army, but that visualization really captures a lot of the story. Okay, so <clears throat> I've sort of skipped ahead there. I've said this is what we do when we get data, but how do we get data in the first place? How do we start to gather the information that we need to formulate theories of the cities and to, and to understand the way a city works? Um, a lot of data has already been collected. I mean, you can go out and collect data, but there's a lot of stuff out there already. Um, you have things like Oyster cards, which are constantly collecting data about people's movements around the city. You have traffic cameras, which are constantly collecting information about cars and trucks uh, and, and, and obviously public transport vehicles on the roads. You have people's mobile devices. Um, uh, and in some cases, people are prepared to volunteer information. Uh, you have things like smart meters, which is uh, uh, meters for uh, measuring energy use in the home. So just starting to get into this, we can start to think about all of these rich data sources that might be relevant to what we're interested in. So this is a, um, a visualization produced by John Reeds at CASA. And it's showing, oyster, based on Oyster card data, which parts of the tube line are busy over the course of uh, Monday, in this case. So what you should see is a pulse. There you go. That's the evening pulse. As those parts of the city, uh, those parts of the central line, in this case, you can see the red central line is, is particularly affected. But those parts of the tube network are, are flooded with commuters, almost like a heartbeat. So again, this is, this is just a, a simple visualization showing those raw numbers. And, and it's not the touch in and touch out. It's working out from where people touched out and where they touched in, where were they on the tube network at each particular time. So it's extrapolating back from that sort of terminus information, starting to get a layer of insight into the system. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, <clears throat> so another, that's a, a, a source data that we're, in some sense, volunteering anyway. Obviously, there, there are some privacy issues that we need to think about for that. But there is actually data which is volunteered by us all the time, and actually, with our knowledge, social media being the obvious one, people who use Twitter, who use Foursquare, they're broadcasting information about their lives. Maybe uh, in, with Foursquare, it's a lot of information about, about where they are. That, can, that happens with Twitter as well, because people can geolocate their tweets. So not only are they providing information about what they're doing, they're providing information about where they are. Um, also, there's also an enormous uh, community of volunteer collectors, people that volunteer information um, about uh, their lifestyle or, or, um, uh, or where they are as well, which I'll, I'll come on to a bit later. And um, there's this concept of Internet of Things, this idea that you can link objects, artifacts, places in the real world to an Internet presence. And there's a big project in CASA which is um, involved in that called Tales of Things. And this is a, a um, photo taken in an Oxfam where these objects have these QR codes. You can't see them very clearly, but they're sort of two-dimensional barcodes. Uh, there's little tags on each of these objects. You can scan it with your smartphone with the, uh, with the appropriate software. And it gives you the history of that object. People can contribute to the, the story of that, of that item. They can contribute images, videos, text on the website. So when you scan that, you can see where this item has been and who's had it and for how long. And you can start to build a, a sort of story around those individual items. And that's not quite at the stage where you're going to aggregate that up and, and um, you know, do statistics and things on it, but it starts to tie in uh, physical objects, physical entities, <coughs> uh, 
to a, an, an internet and a data presence. Um, an, an example of volunteered data uh, I was just talking about is GPS tracking. There's a big project uh, going on in CASA which is involved in that. Uh, this is actually my GPS track. I've got one of these little devices. and it, um, You can do this with a smartphone, but, but if you have a, a, a dedicated device, it doesn't drain your battery, basically. So I had one of these uh, GPS devices, and I went on a walk around London, and I saw where I'd gone. Um, and you can do this, obviously, for more than one person. You can uh, aggregate um, uh, over lots of people, and you can start to ask questions about how long are people spending in their homes, and how does it relate to their energy use? What mode of public transport are people taking? especially if you combine that with an accelerometer so you can get some sense of acceleration and speed. Um, going back to the example of social media, um, you can look at the geolocated tweets, the, the, the tweets with ge uh, geographical information, and say, where are people tweeting in London? Or any city, for that matter, or any geographical region. And you, um, this is what Fabian and, and Steve did in CASA, and they formed this map of, of London, of where people were tweeting. Unsurprisingly, there's a large tweet density in the center of the city where there's a lot of people, um, a lot, lot of people are working. But as you go further out, you see there's, un <coughs> excuse me, there's unexpected little islands of activity which sort of sit above the plane. It's not a homogeneous distribution. So there are little pockets of people tweeting a little bit more animatedly than in other parts of the city. Um, you can go beyond that, and you can not only analyze the location of the tweets, but you can start to look at the content of the tweets. I think this is a really nice piece of work that James and, and Ed did. Uh, Ed's in um, Geomatics. He's, he's not based in Casa, but he works with us quite a lot. And he analyzed the language of, the, of, of geolocated tweets. And what you have here is a map color-coded by the language that tweet was in. So you're seeing a, essentially a language map of London based on this sample of tweets. Well, and I think that's lovely. So you can see that this is, this is on the web, and you can, you can look at this and you actually zoom in and explore it in a bit more detail. But you can see how different communities exist or form uh, across London. You can see where they're located, essentially. Obviously, what you don't know whether, is whether that's where they live or whether they, that's where they work or, um, or, or, or you know, have leisure activities. And on a larger scale, um, there's this initiative for open data. So this is not necessarily just individuals know, this is, this is larger groups of people saying this data should be made public, it should be made accessible to uh, academics, to developers, um, and, and to the public at large, as well as public as a, as a whole. Um, local and central government groups are increasingly making their data available to people like me, um, but, but to everyone as well. Um, there is limited... Uh, because of privacy reasons, but there was limited Transport for London data available that is available to everybody as well. Um, and this is, uh, this is an example of a sort of combined volunteer effort. This is OpenStreetMap. This is a sort of a, a parallel, if you like, to Google Maps, except for the individuals or groups of individuals, they go around and they do the mapping themselves and they upload information to this database. So this database has not only the, the map images, it has the underlying data, so you can actually use that to create other maps and to ma manipulate it in a much more interesting way than Google itself allows because that underlying map data is, is, is proprietary and, and it's commercial. <coughs> um, so on the public, uh, subject of public transport, just by looking at um, timetable data, and the locations of the places those uh, public transport vehicles are supposed to be, you can create a map like this, an animation of public transport activity in London. 
So here, this is something that the jo Joanna's done. Um, you have uh, trains, buses, um, coaches, uh, the tube, and I think you have trams, and uh, you have a river, uh, river, river buses as well, uh, uh, boats, essentially. And so what this does, this is not very exciting yet because it's, it's not quite waking up. And as you see, we're getting to 6 a.m., and the whole city is waking up, and the whole thing suddenly lights up like a Christmas tree as the tube network comes online. The, the buses swap over to the night buses, and you see the whole thing wake up. And this is not based on any GPS data or any sensing data. It's just timetables and the locations of the bus stops and tube stations, the, the uh, docking points for the, for the boats, and the tram stops. So this is how London should operate. Whether it actually does do that in practice is a slightly more complex question. <laughs> Um, so you could do, we can do the same thing um, with uh, bike data. This is something I've worked on with Ollie O'Brien, which is to look at the locations of the bike share, the um, uh, Boris bikes or Barclays bikes or Kenny Farthings, depending on your political persuasion. Um, and again, we don't have GPS data. We can make reasonable inferences about their routes, and we can produce animations of over the course of a day, where are people going? Um, so again, not, not based on GPS data, there is some inference there. And this is Christmas Day 2010. Um, actually, <coughs> a very busy day for the scheme because public transport doesn't run on Christmas Day. So uh, although it's bitterly cold and on Christmas Day, it's actually a very active day for the scheme. Um, and, taking, and, you, and you can go beyond this. You can go beyond these visualizations and you can start to extract analysis. I'll talk about that a little bit later. Okay, so then there's other, that, that, we've talked about open data, we've talked about volunteer data. Uh, and the data that maybe we volunteer without quite realizing it. And that brings us on to sort of the sensitive data issues. I mean, these things are still really important questions for cities and for society as a whole. And they are amenable to analysis. We can add value and can get value by doing that. But if you're talking about crime or health or people's incomes, and potentially even social media, do people want that information being shared? You might feel comfortable with your Twitter data being shared, but maybe your Facebook data, that's a more personal service, for example. Or maybe you don't feel comfortable with either. Um, so these data sets, they're still things we want to use and understand, but we have to be more sensitive about the way that we use them. Uh, this is some data, uh, this is a visualization I did based on the London riots. Um, this is uh, over the uh, five days of the, uh, of the instance in uh, 2011. Um, and what you have is each one of those, those small spots is an incident, and each one of those larger circles indicates how far the, um, the person traveled to the uh, incident of the crime when they're, uh, they're uh, at the point of their arrest. So the, the arrest point is the uh, small circle and the, and the larger circle shows how, lot, how far they've traveled. Um, so looking at that, you can, you can start to see patterns that actually, yes, yeah, the majority of people traveled a short distance, but there were some larger distances to be traveled. And, and that leads on to the analysis of, well, how do we quantify that? How do we understand that a bit more, in a bit more specific detail? Okay, so... Um, so the, what I've sort of outlined is <coughs> one approach to understanding these data sets, one approach to starting to understand the city. You, um, this is not the only way to do it, um, but if you imagine you have a data set, and typically these datas, data sets need some cleaning and some storage. You can't just take them and you need to tidy them up and make sure that there's no errors in there and weird formatting things. And if you ask anyone who works with data, any data scientists or, or quantitative people, they'll tell you that's, that's the biggest part of the job is, is, is fiddling around with data and making, making it look, look nice. Um, and you can straight away visualize that 
as, uh, as I showed in those previous slides, there's really straight visualization with very little analysis, but that means you can immediately start to share that with people. Um, you can use that yourself to inform your research, but you can share it with other people and show, hey, isn't it really interesting what, you know, the pattern of, of public transport in London? Um, you, then you get onto the analysis. That, informs, that can inform analysis. Obviously, the analysis happens on the data itself. And that gives you some sort of outputs. Those might just be graphs. Again, those are things you can visualize and share. And then uh, the other aspect, of course, is theory and model development. Why are we seeing these behaviors? Why do we think these things are happening? And uh, that's informed by the analysis, but also you have to analyze the quality of your models and compare them to the real data. So there's this two-way process of, of um, building theories and testing them out. So um, that also produces outputs, which you can then feedback through the analysis and feed through, feed through to the visualization. So that's a sort of slightly messy version of maybe how you can think about analyzing a data set. And it's certainly another way to do it is to start with the theory and, 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 and use that to lead. But that doesn't always, uh, it doesn't always happen that way in practice. OK, so the systems we're dealing with, with cities, with social systems, they're complex systems. And what I mean by that is they, there's many simple interacting parts producing a more complex whole. And you might argue that human beings are inherently complicated. That's probably true as well. But in this particular circumstance, maybe you can say their behavior is quite simple. If it's a decision whether to get on a bus or not, you know, that's, that, that doesn't necessarily have to incorporate their full range of experiences and, and, and emotions. So a complex system as opposed to a, so a complicated system is something where there's lots of components. It's very, very messy. And they all build together to form something which is simple. OK, so like in a car engine. I don't know how a car engine works. I'm, I don't own a car. I've never attempted to repair one. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's a very complex thing for making a wheel turn. And, it doesn't, and it's not supposed to blow up. Those are the two, two rules for a car engine. But the way that you get there is extremely complicated because you have to have gaskets and, and carburetors and injectors and things. Uh, whereas opposed to, as opposed to a complex system where you, end up, you, you begin with simple elements and you create something really complex. And that complex thing that you create is not necessarily the product of some design. Uh, I realize that's controversial as I'm showing a beautiful snowflake. But in this case, you can argue that you're starting off with simple water molecules. And the way those interact produces patterns much more compl complex than you would expect from, from just those simple elements, uh, and much more varied and, and, and potentially unpredictable as well. OK, so how can we think about understanding these complex systems? I'll show you how, to, how, how we get the data, how we visualize it, how we start to get some insight into it, but how do we go a bit further and actually get some, in, some analysis? Um, how, do we how do we tackle these complex systems? Well, first answer is data tools. Um, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you couldn't have stored a data set which was the 11 million bike journeys um, that the TfL have released. Uh, or if you could, it would have been incredibly expensive. Now, now that's at the reach of anybody with a desktop computer. Uh, and database tools are increasingly available and increasingly sophisticated. Um, that leads on to sort of statistical analyses. This is the first graph of the lecture. I'm quite pleased with myself. Um, <laughs> this is a linear graph. And this is, this is actually just some work uh, that uh, a, a team in CASA are doing on, on cities, trying to look at universal laws, universal scaling laws uh, in, in cities. Uh, that follows on some work from some work done at the Santa Fe Institute um, in, in, in the States. And this is just looking, trying to look at the correlation of the population of a city with certain other parameters. So this is the population versus the income. And it's showing quite a nice linear trend here. So um, 
Uh, that's interesting in itself, but you can start to do this with all kinds of different factors, like the number of patents a city produces, or the, uh, the uh, infrastructure, the miles of road that a city has versus its population. And you start to see some interesting things across multiple cities which show consistency. So you're not focusing on the uniqueness of a city. Obviously, every city is unique. You're focusing on the factors which it has in common, the sort of similarities, which allow you to view them as a similar object. Sort of taxonomically. Um, so you can go beyond that. You can go beyond statistical analysis and start to look at artificial intelligence. Um, and when I say artificial intelligence, I don't mean Skynet. I don't mean a sort of all-powerful computer that will rain nuclear destruction on the heads. I just mean software tools that try and find patterns, clusters, correlations within data sets. And that's a very much, a, I mean, that's a relatively current field, I would say. That sort of data mining. Um, and it very much ties into statistical analysis, but it goes a step beyond that. Um, another aspect, which is, I think, a really interesting area is network theory, which explores the connections between objects. This is actually a, um, a, a sort of a hierarchical diagram of UCL. You've got UCL in the middle, and then there's green things of the, the, the different schools, and each bit is a faculty, and then off the faculty come the departments. So this is a very hierarchical structure because that's, that's the way that UCL is organized, but you can do that for any kind of system. You can do that for social systems. You can look at um, network, epidemiological networks of disease spreading. You can look at mobile phone networks. You can look at transport networks. And you can start to say things about the way these systems connect, how easy it is to move across this network, not in a geographical way, but in terms of the number of connections getting from A to B, in terms of which nodes are important for, tra for traffic, which nodes are important for... Um, transmitting or receiving entities, whatever those entities might be, whether those are bikes or, or cars or, or whatever they are. So that's a very interesting area. That's something that happens quite a lot around CASA and, and, and other parts of the field. <coughs> um, you can also do a lot of old-fashioned mathematics, by which I mean pages of algebra like this, where you're not necessarily doing computer simulations, you're not doing statistics, you're just trying to create a mathematical model which explains how something behaves. Um, but you can do the other option. You can also do things which are more like simulations, which are more like creating entities which are a bit, are a bit like, we call them agents, but they're a bit like individuals, whatever that individual might be. They could be human beings or they could be uh, cars queuing. And then we, we see what the output is of those simulations. We let them interact. We give each individual a set of rules and we let them interact with some virtual environment and each other and we see what happens. And this is uh, an example of that. This is uh, <clears throat> uh, via the power of a Microsoft Connect sensor. These eyeballs here, which are projected on the table, are able to see these physical objects, these cardboard boxes and this Coke can. And that means you can actually move around space and can reconfigure it. And you can look at how these virtual pedestrians can move through this space, how they're affected if you, if you put a wall to block them off or channel them down into a bottleneck, what happens to their behavior. Uh, and and it's, it's very hard to, 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 to replicate human behavior. But, um, but this is a way to sort of step towards a sort of cartoonish version, if you like. It's a, it's a first step to try and simulate that. OK. So I'll just sort of finish off with who benefits from this. After we've done all this, after we've done this analysis, this visualization, we've got all this data, this is it's fantastic for us. But who, who, who benefits from this brave new world of, of data measurement and analysis and, and so on? Um, another way. I'd like to put this as, hey, can we share this with people? Uh, there's a lot of people who, um, who, who benefit from this, potentially. So, hey, can we share this with them? Um, 
And there's lots of ways we can do that. This is, uh, this is an example of a, a website that um, James and Ollie set up, which just looks at the proposed boundary changes um, uh, across, uh, across England and uh, allows the user to slide um, between the current and the past uh, and the future proposed changes, start to see how that affects them. Um, this is a, a project that um, Ollie O'Brien uh, has worked on, which is a city dashboard for London. It aggregates all of this information that we've been talking about, um, information about tube lines, uh, weather, uh, radiation count, weirdly, and it puts them all on one page and it allows people to sort of access all of the information they need about their city. And this is a sort of a prototype. What else could we do that with this? How could we take this further? We could look at smartphone apps. Um, that's another way that you, could, you can deliver information, but also collect information. It can be a two-way process. Uh, this is an app developed by George McCarran, who was uh, at um, Castle until fairly recently, and he developed this at uh, his time uh, at LSE. It's, it's an app that asks you how you feel. Are you in a good mood? Where are you? And it allows you to map happiness, satisfaction across the UK. Um, this is a slightly more fun, uh, well, mapping this is a lot of fun. This is a slightly more wacky example. It's called Pigeon Sim. It's used as a connect, and it allows uh, people in a physical space, like this, this uh, young man here, to fly around the city, literally fly around a Google map, 3D Google map, of uh, the Google Earth view of, uh, of London. And not only does that enable you to explore your city, it also allows you to uh, put data onto that map. It's not very clear from this, but there were geotagged tweets appearing over that map. So as you fly through, you can see what people are saying and, uh, and where they're saying it. So that, that's just a sort of different way to represent the same thing, represent the same data in a way that's really, really accessible for people. Okay, so to wrap up, what have I learned? Um, I've learned social physics have been around for over 150 years. Um, I'm happy to sort of carry on using it, really. Uh, data is getting more and more abundant, so that's, that's a fantastic time for people like me and I think for the world in general. Understanding it is hard because it's complex data and we need to rise to the challenge. We need to develop new tools. We need to use computational techniques, database techniques, statistics, maths, pull all together uh, and, uh, and turn that into a, uh, an interpretation and a story. Um, and we need to think about how we provide value for people sharing their data. If people give you data, what are you going to give back to them? And the people who are affected by the systems as a whole public transport affects the majority of us. And that's citizens, that's people who use the service, that's people who provide the service, that's government and potentially other sorts of institutions. Um, so I will end there and uh, leave 10 minutes for questions. Thank you very much. Okay, as indicated, we have uh, sort of eight, nine minutes for questions. Uh, those of you who are veterans of the lunch hour lectures will know that when called upon to give a question, you have to wait until one of these fine people brings you a microphone so that uh, the many millions who are watching, not to give you any stress, uh, the, the many millions who are watching online uh, will be able to hear your very intelligible question, intelligent and hopefully intelligible. Uh, who has a question for Martin? All right, one over there. <clears throat> Thanks for an interesting lecture, first of all. Um, so with all this uh, sensitive data and uh, a lot of uh, chunks of quite personal information in a way, uh, what might happen if it gets in the wrong hands and uh, what's done to prevent it? Um, uh, well, okay, I mean, I think the interesting thing to know, uh, for people who aren't academics, I'm not that interested in individuals at all. I mean, I don't, I don't want to know your home address and how old you are and, you know, um, how much you earn. Marketing companies would love that information. And I think they're the, uh, I wouldn't say that they're the, they're the greatest danger, but that is where the privacy issue comes in. Like, you can give me your data and I won't read it. I mean, I'm not gonna send you letters. 
but I'm interested in the, the, the I, might, I mean, I might be interested in, in, in your age group. So that might be useful to me, but not as an individual. So I, I don't know. I think, I think that's evolving. I think that's an evolving issue. I worry that there will be a serious backlash against this free data. I don't think people that use Twitter, for example, necessarily think about the fact that it is a broadcast medium. Um, and uh, you know, uh, I don't think most people that do that um, geolocate, but I think that's still an issue. All right, one there. Hi, thank you for the lecture. And my question's about, when you mention stuff like OpenStreetMap, how do you validate the information? Say someone spams the data, or say someone voluntarily ruins the data in some sense. So this is a lot dependent on data. Everything's dependent on data. Yeah. Yeah. Someone spams it. How do you get rid of it? Um, I don't, I, I'm not personally involved with the uh, OpenStreetMap community, so I don't uh, have a very specific answer to that. I, I would say that things like the Wikipedia model, which is kind of what OpenStreetMap is, I guess, are pretty successful. I mean, Wikipedia itself is tremendously successful. Yes, people spam it. There is a lot of moderation on sensitive topics. I mean, I guess that's one way to do it. Um, I don't know what the backups are. I mean, I assume there are, there are backups in case, if someone destroys the latest version, there's revision capability. So uh, I think the answer is probably it shouldn't work, but it does seem to. We have one down here. Also, if, if multiple people want to ask questions, then we can line people up and get microphones to you. So don't hesitate to raise your hand while somebody else is speaking. Um, first, thanks for the lecture. Uh, that graph of population versus income was incredibly mm. linear. And yeah. I wondered if there were more instances like that that were giving you an incredibly solid idea of what a city is. Like, well, we wouldn't have realized that without that being plotted, that it was so solid. Is there, is, is there an emerging model of what exactly a city is in that kind of, in, with more yeah. data like that, that that surprises you, say, that, that tells you more about what these big metropolises that we've that have emerged yeah. are that we might not understand or might surprise us. That's a really good question. Um, I think there's a lot to say about that. Really, um, the first thing is this is on a log-log scale, and that basically means that things probably look a bit more linear than they actually are. So there's probably more scatter if you put this on a linear scale. It would look a bit more messy. Um, another thing to say is that when this work was done in America, when they did it in the States, uh, uh, Jeff West and um, Louis Betancourt did this. It wasn't linear. They found that, on average, the uh, wages increased for larger population. The per capita wages increased for larger population. So this is from the UK, and it was actually surprising. This is work in progress to try and understand why the UK and the US are different. So then the question is, is there, is there a common city, or does it vary on you know, the country, the geographical features, the density of population? Because in the UK, the cities are less separated, perhaps, than in the States, and questions like this. So um, they're, they're, they're trying to understand those questions at the moment. And it's a very aggregate picture. It doesn't give you much detail. So you might start to get some classifications, but you won't maybe get all of the essential features of, of the city. So it's hard, to, it's hard to say whether you could typify a city just from this data. But it's certainly a really interesting approach, right? We have one coming from the middle here. Hi. Um, I was wondering whether you see similar patterns across different data sets. Do you see what I mean? So do you, can you recognize patterns and say, a Twitter data set compared to a transport one? I mean, do, do you see yeah. things emerge? Um, typically, you're looking for really different things. Um, there, I suppose the counter example would be like if you had a, like really, really finely grained Twitter data. 
like over long periods of time, very fine traces, GPS traces, and you compare that with transport data, then you'd expect to see similar patterns. But a lot of the time, you're taking really different approaches. Some of these are like you've got this aggregate approach. Some of them you just, you just want to know geographical concentrations, and then other ones... Sure, but say you're looking at, say, London. Yeah. And you look at the Twitter across London, then you look at... I mean, are, you, are there shortcuts as well? I'm trying, have you found anything that's in... I wouldn't say there were shortcuts. There were similar techni yeah. <coughs> techniques that you tend to use. Yeah. And then what you would tend to do is rather than saying this is the same as another data set, you would look for correlations and you'd try and prove that they were the same. Yeah. So you'd look at um, correlation of Twitter with demographic data or something like that, let's say. Um, okay. And that's, that, that sort of thing has been done a bit. Okay, we have one here in the one, two, three, fourth row. Right side of the room, we're, we're also holding out hope for you. <laughs> Excuse me. Hi. Are there any good examples of data being analyzed and then fed back and being used for city planning and shaping the future? Hmm. Um, yes, in the broadest sense, yes. Um, so, for example, I, 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 talking about something I've worked on, the bike data, I know that the, the recent extension that they're doing to the southwest of London is based on, on census data. So that's a few years old but they're based on information about who uses bikes, who's likely to use bikes, and they've planned the, um, the, the stands based around that information. So, yeah, it does certainly happen. I mean, in terms of, I think, you need to ask a planner. I think planners probably would say that they have evidence-based approaches, but I, I, I'm not a, a planner. So probably, yes, they've been doing it for years, but I can't think of any specific examples. Um. You said you were a physicist to start with. Do you see patterns in sort of big collections of human data which reflect physical phenomena like Boltzmann distributions or nucleated growth or that sort of thing? Um, yeah, I mean, actually, so uh, the <coughs> Professor Batty, who's um, the, the founder of CASA, has done a lot of work on fractal patterns in cities, and he's used models um, and simulations which come out of chemistry and physics to look at the growth of a city, the sort of morphology, the shape of the city, um, the way that things sort of aggregate and, and then grow out in a, in a sort of, you know, you mentioned sort of like a branch, root and branch type structure. So he's done a lot of work on that. And there is um, a lot of the mathematical techniques that we use um, come from statistical mechanics. So, so the, the, the maths of, 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 of atoms in a gas, essentially, in large numbers, that kind of, that kind of physics. So there are correlations. It's a it's, I think it's dangerous to form too strong an analogy because they are totally different systems. We have two final questions coming from the right side, first there and then that gentleman there. Is this on? Okay. Um, in psychology, we have um, statistical models that help you predict academic future success. So you can look at, say, GCSE grades and then use that to perhaps you, you look at past data and say, oh, people got these grades and you can look at the correlation between those grades and university grades and you sort of use that as a predictor of future um, outcomes. So if you have 16-year-olds get particular grades at GCSE, you can say, oh, these ones are probably more likely to do well than this group, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. From the data you were showing about um, uh, journeys, you mentioned about marketing. I was wondering about purchasing. So if I go out shopping mm. and, for example, at Christmas, I might buy more toys for presents, I might buy more music. Um, I remember when I was 16, I used to buy more music when I was at Christmas time, for, for example, and that, I think yeah. that's kind of been 
demonstrated to be a, a psychological thing. We, we, certain things we buy, uh, we do and buy at particular times of the year. Mm -hmm. By way of analogy, I was wondering how, if you could use this to perhaps look at how people act, interact in the city, how they travel, how they move around the city, um, you know, modes of transport perhaps, whether they, you know, use the car, um, bus, tra um, underground, and whether you can see classes and whether you can make a prediction about few, you know, possible short-term or medium-term behavior patterns. So perhaps on a particular day of the week, particular month of the year, people use the bus more, yeah. do certain types of shopping. I was wondering if you could use that as a predictor of future events or uh, behaviors. Yeah, uh, I mean, mm, I, I'm, I'm very skeptical about the term prediction. Uh, but yeah, you can, the kind of statistical prediction you're talking about is, yeah, of a group, right? Um, yeah, you can do that. I mean, essentially, you can kind of cross-pollinate any data sets you want if you have the, the matching information. You could cross-pollinate how, how, how much people spend and how much they earn based on their, you know, their um, loyalty card, you know, their, their, their nectar card or whatever, versus their transport patterns, in theory. Um, whether you'd get ethics approval to do that, I'm not sure. <laughs> Um, yeah, in theory, that you could do all sorts of things, but uh, it's a very complex system. I think prediction is quite a strong word. Okay, on that note, I'm afraid we're all out of time. I'm very sorry, <laughs> but I'm sure Martin would be willing to talk with you briefly, uh, but we have to clear out of the room to let the next class in. So th let's thank Dr. Ostwick for his time.